Hey, deserving listeners, just me today. I thought I would respond to some patron emails. This email is from a patron, but before I do that, let's introduce the podcast. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda, and I'm a therapist and a professor. This email is from an anonymous patron. Uh, he writes, do you have any thoughts on a client being aware of the therapeutic process and being a bit critical of a therapist as a result? I imagine this may be an issue for therapists who see therapists. I just finished reading Between Therapists. And, so so uh, maybe I should just summarize. Basically, we have a patron who's writing in, and he is seeing a therapist. And he's having trouble trusting his therapist's empathy as being genuine. And he actually read a book that I recommend for therapists called Between Therapist and Client by Michael Kahn. And he, it's a, as he's reading the book, he's like, you know, this, this patron, he's like, oh, I think my therapist actually might use this style of therapy where, because my therapist seems to really care about the relationship and seems to try to have a lot of empathy for me. And so uh, he goes on here. Um, I find myself a bit annoyed that therapy, while obviously individualized, is not actually individualized, if that makes any sense. There is a general formula to the process, and I'm irritated that I am just another client that fits into his general formula. For example, if empathy should be practiced with all clients, then is the empathy genuine? If my therapist sees a child abuser, as well as a victim of child abuse, are they both deserving of the same empathy? Why should I be okay with this? Do you truly care about your clients? I believe my therapist cares about me, but as an example, he won't hug me. He just doesn't hug his clients. He prefers to explore why his clients would ask for a hug instead. I know we're not friends, but you wouldn't just hug a friend, right? You 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 wouldn't or you would just hug a friend, right? You wouldn't just explore why they want to hug. Okay, so yeah, these are all good questions. Uh, people often ask this, and I've done a whole episode on whether or not therapists care or not. You can find a list of all the episode topics at psychologyinseattle.com. But just real briefly, yeah, it's a very complicated thing, and there's no way to really sum this up, even if I was to talk about this for hours and hours. It's a very, you know, therapy is a very complicated thing. Humans are very complicated. You know, what's empathy? What's real empathy? Uh, what's the role of the therapist? And, and what's the range that you'll get from a therapist? Some therapists come across as very genuine and some therapists don't. So it just, it depends. Um, you know, I go to therapy and when I'm in therapy, I try to forget about the fact that my therapist is trying to follow a particular technique because thinking about that will just interfere with the therapy. You know, of, of course, my th I teach therapists, right? In fact, as I, you know, get older, sometimes my therapist will be less experienced than I am. And if I really just scrutinized their style, I would have all sorts of negative things to say, because that's my job is to figure out where a therapist is going wrong and, and help that therapist not do that anymore. And so, uh, so occasionally that'll pop into my head, but that's not what I'm there for, right? I'm not there to scrutinize the therapist's approach. I'm there to get help. And, and so, yeah, of course, as I'm, as I'm in therapy, I, if, if I chose to focus on it, I could, I could 
it would not help. Let's just put it that way. And, and yeah, of course, my therapist is only listening to me because it's her job and she's getting paid to do it. If I, if she wasn't getting paid, she wouldn't talk to me. So it's a, it's a weird um, situation in which how can it be genuine if they're only doing it for money, right? Um, now, sometimes there's pro bono and blah, 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 but anyway, in general. But I don't focus on those things because it's not really helpful. I try to focus on other realities, like she does seem to truly care about me, and she is really listening to me, and she very much supports me in a lot of ways and makes me uh, think about things more, and uh, she pays attention. I mean, really, all relationships can be looked at this way if you wanted to. You know, When a waiter is being polite to me, I can choose to see that as completely fake and fraudulent. And the only reason why he's being nice to me is because he wants to get a good tip. Or I can choose to see it as mostly genuine, which will probably make me feel better. When when a teacher takes time to help me with an assignment, I can see that as well. The teacher's only doing that because they're getting paid to do it. And, it, and also that teacher wants a good rating at the end of the quarter or something. Or I can see it as uh, genuine. When my dentist stops to tell me about something to help me understand something better about my teeth, I can choose to see that as a, you know, oh, he, he just wants me to pay more money at this clinic. You know, he's, he just wants to buy a new BMW or something. Or I can look at it as a genuine interaction, which the dentist is really interested in me understanding something. You can even just look at friends. You know, when a, when a friend listens to one of my boring stories, is that is my friend genuinely interested in that story? You know, is my friend like on the edge of his seat or her seat, or or is my friend just being polite? Um, you know, what if my friend has a general approach to friendships? Maybe maybe over time as they've matured, my uh, this friend has developed an approach to listening to people's stories by not interrupting them and. And even though they're not super interested, just trying to act like they're interested by asking questions or something, you know, that's a friend can have a quote unquote approach to me, but that doesn't mean it's not genuine. doesn't mean that it's fake. It just means that there's, there's a guideline that, that someone's following. So to get into your specific questions here, you're saying, I find myself a bit annoyed that therapy, while obviously individualized, is not actually individual. It's not actually individualized, if that makes any sense. So basically, what you're saying, patron, is that I, th- I think you're confusing approach to uh, being the same, right? Like I have a general approach to my clients for sure. If I didn't, that would be I would be an irresponsible clinician. If I don't have a guiding model or a guiding theory as to why people develop issues and how to help them, then I'm just like anyone else and I'm just shooting in the dark. So I, I, or I'm just like reenacting my own issues in other people's lives. And so I have to, of course, have some kind of an approach, but that doesn't mean that I treat everyone the same. It's actually impossible to treat two clients the same because the way in which we come to, you know, the way in which I relate to every client is different because it's two different people, you know. If you watched me in session with different clients, you would see different versions of me. 
because relationships and even our own psyches are co-constructed. You know, the, our conscious minds are interacting, our unconscious minds are interacting, and there's, there's, there's all these things that fly out of control. And there are times with my clients where I act in ways that I don't like the, f- the way that I'm doing that. I'm like, why, are, why is this happening? And it's, it's because, you know, the way we come together, it sort of evokes certain behaviors from me. So, so the fact that I have an approach doesn't mean that I treat everyone the same, right? So, so that's, again, same with friendships, right? You know, patron for yourself, when you um, have friends or especially when you're building a friendship, you probably have certain guidelines that you follow, like make sure that you text them back when they, you know, when they text you and make sure you don't blow them off for five months or, you know, you, you have an approach, but, and you apply that approach to all of your friends, right? But that doesn't mean that you're being fake with your friends. So, so that's a very important distinction. A, an approach does not mean fake. Um, you know, I am frequently telling supervisees to exhibit more empathy, not because they don't have empathy, but because they're having trouble accessing it in the therapy office. And they're, they also often have this idea that therapy is a, is a, a, I don't know, a non empathy practice. (laughs) Like they, they have this vision of therapy as being this something that you do to a client, you know, a client comes to you and you, you like fix them or you do, you tinker with their brain and, and they're better, you know, and there certainly are things that are in line with those metaphors, but, but really more often than not, being a good therapist is making the other, making the client feel your, you know, you know, feel your real empathy, you know, getting them to really know that you care and you're paying attention. Anyway, so going on with some of your questions here. So you're saying there's a there's a general formula to the process and I'm irritated that I am just another client that fits into this general formula. For example, if empathy should be practiced with all clients, then is empathy genuine? If my therapist sees a child abuser as well as a victim of child abuse, are they both deserving of the same empathy? Um, yeah, this is a very complicated question. And one way you can actually know that it is genuine for a lot of therapists is that for a lot of therapists, it's actually hard for them to exhibit empathy for a child abuser. It, it requires a lot of training and a lot of experience to be able to pay attention to the kinds of things that will evoke natural empathy from me when I am talking to someone who is a perpetrator. So, and that didn't come naturally to me. And I was, it was, it was hard to actually, and, and, and it's not like I put on a fake empathy mask with these, when I'm having trouble getting empathy for someone, it's not like I put on a fake empathy mask and then walk away and say, that guy, you know, I hate that guy, (laughs) you know, what, what, what's happening is, and I work with a lot of supervisees on this is like, you have to find a way to access your empathy, meaning you have to find your empathy in you, and then you can actually let it out. Because if you're trying to fake empathy, it won't work. Plus, you, if a lot of times, if you're trying to fake empathy, empathy, you actually are actively hating the client, which will come out. And so it takes a lot of work and a lot of training and a lot of wisdom and a lot of experience and a lot of soul searching to 
have a path in your soul in that allows you to find empathy for, for people that you've been taught by culture to not have empathy for. Um, you ask, why should I be okay with this? You're saying, because essentially you're saying if my therapist is having empathy for perpetrators, why should I be okay with this? Well, yeah, I mean, that's a, you know, I, I don't have the answer to that question because if if you know that your therapist is seeing, for example, your perpetrator or a perpetrator of sexual uh, assault and you are a victim of sexual abuse, then, yeah, that's going to be hard to uh, reconcile because you're like, how can you have empathy for someone that hurt me so badly? You know, I, that's a valid question. And I There's no real good answer to that, honestly. But. There, there's also a sort of tone to your email that seems to be um, that, that gives me some minor indication of the following. So I'm about to go on a little jag here, patron, and feel free to take it or leave it because I don't know you and I just have the f- couple emails that we had back and forth. So, but here's my suspicion: is you seem to be just flat out annoyed at your therapist for being a therapist in some ways, you know? And the fact that you're annoyed is likely because uh, it's likely a result of, it likely stems from your traumatization as a child. You know, when you, when we're traumatized as children, particularly by people close to us, we grow up with a difficulty trusting other people, especially as we get closer to them. Because as we get closer to them, it reminds us of the experiences we had when we were young and we become increasingly worried that this person is going to you know exploit us or figure out our weaknesses and use that against us or really let us down when we really need them and so as you get closer to your therapist you're starting to feel those feelings you're starting to feel those worried feelings that unsafe feeling and it might even feel very distressing, like a trauma reaction, or it might even feel very painful in some ways. And because you have that feeling and there's no rational reason for you to have it because your therapist you know, probably is a stable person and, and if they're following the Michael Kahn sort of model or a model that's like the Michael Kahn's model, then you know, they're likely very relational oriented and very, uh, you know, pay attention to you and whatnot. And so as you're getting closer to him, you're, you're feeling, you're starting to have those, those trauma reactions, which is totally normal. And you're trying to find a reason for those feelings. And because he, he, your therapist is being a good therapist, you can't really find any, any good reason as to why you're starting to feel like um, there's a reason to be suspicious of him. And so you're, in my opinion, you seem to be sort of grasping at straws in that you're, you're trying to, you're, you're, you're like, well, how can I discount his, his empathy that I, I want so much? And of course you want his empathy. I mean, everyone wants empathy from everybody, including their therapist, but you, you really want that empathy and you want it to be real. Of course you do, but you're very worried that it's going to hurt and so you're trying to protect yourself by uh, labeling him as fake and as quote unquote using an approach and 
by sort of pushing the hugging issue as an example as to why he doesn't really care. And so all of that, all these um, conscious thoughts are efforts to defend against the extreme worry you have about getting close to him, which is totally normal. And you should allow yourself to have that. Uh, I'm not telling you to push past that because those defense mechanisms have been your friend in a lot of ways. And so you should just um, go with the flow for a while. (laughs) It's my recommendation. Continue developing a good relationship with your therapist. Tell your therapist all your feelings, you know, put put your therapist to the test and uh, your therapist hopefully will pass those tests and, and you'll, uh, that part of you that's worried will become less worried over time. And in all likelihood, you, you'll find yourself thinking less about his approach and, and more about uh, the genuine healing that's occurring in therapy. Going on with another question that you ask, do you truly care about your clients? Yeah, absolutely. I, I do truly care about my clients. I, I, I don't have any way of convincing anyone of that because I'm the only one that knows that. But I know it. <laughs> um, I wouldn't, I, I couldn't do this work and I wouldn't do this work if I didn't actually care. You know, there's, there's a lot of downsides to being a therapist and uh, especially when you're starting out. And if I didn't, if I didn't truly care, I would have quit a long time ago because there's not a lot that's it's one of the rewards to being a therapist is is the empathy and the caring and the the ability to to give that to someone else there's a that's a big gift to me to be able to give to someone else is a big gift to me and i i benefit i it makes me feel good you know it makes me feel alive it makes me feel like something's really happening. In fact, that was, you know, one of sort of the factors that drew drew me to this profession in the first place was I was, uh, I was in my early twenties and I, I was just a regular business person in a suit, in an office at a research market research firm. And I liked it. And I was like, and I could sort of see the trajectory of my career before me. You know, eventually I would move up in the ranks. Eventually I'd become an associate or I'd have my own market research firm at some point. And, and I liked it. And, but the thing about it was that it did not have that human element to me. It felt like I was a part of a capitalistic scheme that didn't have that super, (laughs) um, that super big thing that therapy does, which is actual human to human interaction with the sole purpose of interacting. You know, I'm not interacting with a client to sell them something or to convince them of something. It's, it's a pure interaction in, in a lot of ways. And so, um, so for me, yeah, I absolutely do care regarding hug it, hugging, you know, it, it's seemingly from your language that you're using in your email, it's, it seems to be hurting your feelings that your therapist isn't hugging you. And that's that's fine. It, it's normal to have those feelings. It's normal to want to hug your therapist. Um, but, you know, it's pretty normal for therapists to have a policy like that. I I have a general policy that I don't 
that I don't hug my clients. But if a client asks for a hug, um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll hug briefly, but I'll give sort of the impression that it's not in my wheelhouse or it's not a part of my regular practice to hug people. When I worked with teenagers and kids, there was a lot more hugging because kids and teenagers just tend to want that more, I think. And, and kids are just cuter and you just have to hug them sometimes, I think. Um, but in my practice now, I, in fact, I can't remember the last time I hugged a client. Now, that's just me. Other therapists hug all their clients after every session. They hug every single th- you know client and there's nothing wrong with that. But for me and my style and my overall thing, it's just, it's just a choice I've made. Uh, mostly because there are so many other ways for a therapist to convey care and empathy that don't run the risk of there being a confusion or a lawsuit or something, you know? Um, I mean, I hate the fact that our society and our profession is so touch phobic, you know, because we, there's so many of us that are touch deprived and, and I think that's a really sad state of affairs. And I, and I think it's getting worse. I think that, uh, I think it's getting worse and it's going to get worse with more entertainment being on our phones and our laptops and our computers and more of an ability for all of us to have our own rooms and our own cars and our own space. We are physically isolated from other people. It's part of the reason why so many Americans have pets because there's there's no there's nothing taboo about hugging your dog or your cat. <laughs> um, in fact, and cats don't have the stupid learned culture about shame about touching, and so so dogs and cats they'll just come up and touch you, you know. And I think that you know they'll they'll want you know they'll want physical interaction, and so um, the you know we functionally are getting more and more pets because. We are dysfunctionally without any touch in our life. So, patron, it's total, it makes total sense you want to hug your therapist, but you know your therapist doesn't is you know that's not their thing, and it's you know it's just their policy for everybody. And what my hope is is that you can what you're trying to get through a hug, you can get through all the other things in therapy, like your therapist providing empathy, listening to you, being consistent, not canceling on you. Uh, paying attention. If you've seen the movie Lady Bird, uh, one of the main points of that movie is that love is perhaps paying attention. That when you pay attention to something, even if you don't like it, that is love. <laughs> you have to watch the movie. It's it's a kind of a poignant moment. I'm not explaining it very well. But anyway, let's take a break and read another email. What do you say? All right, we're back from the break. If you have not become a patron yet, what are you waiting for? If you're one of those thousands of people who listens to the podcast but is not a patron yet, go to patreon.com and become a patron. You might have to go to your computer or a phone or something and actually go to the website, patreon.com. When you become a patron, you get access to a bunch of patron exclusive episodes but really perhaps more importantly is you're supporting something that you enjoy so if you haven't done so yet do so now go to patreon.com become a patron of the podcast uh this is an email from another patron here who wants to remain anonymous 
She says, how do you handle having a therapist in the family? I know you've addressed being married to a therapist, but in this case, it's my sister. I love her, and with most families, we have a typical sibling relationship where we are best friends and mortal enemies. But at the end of the day, we are the biggest supporter of each other. In the last year, I've had multiple traumas in my life. Throughout all of this, she was by my side. She took me in her home, and she took care of me. Without her, without her, I wouldn't be here to send this email. Once I started therapy, the therapist and I started working on a lot of things, including setting, setting boundaries with my sister and the rest of my family. My sister began to get upset and second-guess my therapist's advice about this. My sister would say that she couldn't ethically treat me, but then she would offer her professional opinion as if she were my therapist. I have made vast improvements with my therapist. I'm working towards becoming me again. However, my sister doesn't think I should be establishing boundaries with her as per my therapist's recommendation. She also doesn't agree with other aspects of my therapy. How do I handle, uh, sorry, how do you handle a therapist in your family? When it's, when it's just people giving advice, it's one thing, but when they are granted the title and certifications that come with being a therapist, it's a different situation. Okay. Yeah, it's a difficult situation. I've seen this before, and there's a number of things I can say about this. It One, it's impossible for me to tell what's actually happening. You know, your sister might actually be giving good advice, it, and your therapist might actually be giving bad advice. Uh, it's hard for me to tell. From the sound of it, it sounds like your therapist probably has the, um, the I don't know, the, the easiest time sort of sifting through the situation and figuring out what's best for you, particularly if it feels good, you know, in terms of what you're doing. So I can't really, I can't, it's hard for me to tell, but I, and I will say that I've seen a lot of therapists resort to a very sort of simple answer with their clients in terms of like, you got to establish boundaries with people. You got to individuate, you know, you, you got to like get other people out of your life. And I find that to be a weird bias that a lot of therapists possess. I think it's just easier for a therapist. It's just like, look, if I have this person all to myself, then, um, then it's easier for me to get things done with this client. But the reality is, is that people have messy lives. They, have relationships with other people, and so all that needs to be taken into consideration. Having said that, I'm going to assume that your therapist is a good therapist and your therapist knows what they're doing and that the um, it, the advice to set boundaries with your sister is actually good, particularly given the way your sister is reacting. Um, so, I'll, so I'll say all that. It's just hard for me to tell. I'd really have to talk with everyone to figure out like what the right answer is to this. Um, having said all that, I yeah, one way of looking at this is that your family system, you know, your as a systems thinker, I see families as entities in and of themselves. And families, particularly families that are highly involved with each other, which it sounds like your family is, they develop a what we call a homeostasis or a, a, a habit or a routine that they follow where people have certain roles, right? You have the clown and the baby and the responsible one and the scapegoat and the the one who always plans for you know holidays and the one who cries a lot and the one who is quote unquote stoic and strong and so so it appears perhaps in your family system you've always been the needy one the one who 
needs help. And your sister is the fixer. She's the one who is responsible and knows what to do. And so the family has really relied on her in that way. And the family has relied on you to be the needy one at times. At the very least, that's just the history of the family. But sometimes the families actually depend on each person to, to play their rigid role. The reason, basically, in a nutshell, the reason why families like habit and routines is because it's just a lot easier to follow a routine than to reinvent the family system every day. Also, when a family system changes, there's always this worry that the family's going to fly apart. You know, when the kids go out, when the when you have a kid that goes to college and moves across the country, there's all, there's always this fear in everyone that is this the end of our closeness? You know, are, are we going to be close again? It's why it's why people get strangely rigid about things. You know, like. We always have Thanksgiving at grandma's house. And if we don't have Thanksgiving at grandma's house, then I'm going to get really upset. It's often because people are terrified of losing the little bit of closeness that they have with their family. And, and so that's it. It's, you know, so in other words, being rigid to a homeostasis or to a habitual routine is it's a rational choice that people make. But, with reflection and with experimentation, they can learn that change can actually not only preserve the closeness, but can actually improve it. So now that you're growing, which it sounds like you really are, you're changing and you're starting to change your role in the family. And you're, and by definition, you're changing the habitual routine of the system, which, as I said, is always scary to people. They might not be conscious of that fear, but it's 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 very scary to people deep down. So all you have to do uh, in general is continue working with your therapist and strategizing about this. But basically what your sister is doing is she's trying desperately to bring you back into the old way. She doesn't want your life to fall apart, but she definitely probably wants the family to stay the same. And if the family's going to stay the same, then that means you have to be the needy one. You have to be the one who is struggling, and you have to be very close and perhaps, as we say, enmeshed with her and the rest of the family. So as you uh, individuate and establish a new routine with the system, you have to remain calm. You have to try to just bear with it for a while because it's normal for, for family members to react. Um, it's it's their job. you know. It's their job to try to to try to create equilibrium and you're pulling everything out of whack. Um, and so the, the idea is, is that if you remain calm, eventually things will change that the, the, the mistake you can make is by amping up your anxiety and acting out, which will probably push you back into a needy position and, you know, in, in a sort of, angry, assertive manner, you could actually inadvertently return to the needy role in the family. So you just have to remain calm. Bowen talked a lot about this. It's like, you just have to, you know, in the face of all this uh, effort to, through negative feedback, as they say, to bring you back into alignment, uh, you just have to, you know, continue on your way and try to be as differentiated as possible. At the same time, though, you want to tell people that, that you love them. You know, like with your sister, you say, look, sister, you know, I know that you, it seems that you're afraid of me establishing boundaries with you. And I just want to tell you that I'm, 
you don't have anything to fear because I still love you and I still appreciate everything you've done for me, but I feel like I'm growing and I feel like part of that growth means that I need to kind of be on my own a little bit more with just a little bit more space, a little bit more emotional space for me to, you know, figure out who I am. And I know that that's going to hurt and I know that that's scary, but believe me, I will never stop loving you and I will never stop wanting to hang out with you. But I would, I just want to kind of spread my wings a little bit and you're just going to have to trust me because I, maybe this is a mistake, but I want to give it a try. But just know that I love you and that I'm not, this isn't like the beginning of the end of our relationship. In fact, in a lot of ways, this might make it so that I, you don't have to worry about me so much and we can actually just be close sisters, you know? So those, that's a very important conversation to have, particularly in enmeshed relationships because she legitimately loves you and, and legitimately wants contact with you and, le- and legitimately has fears about you, quote unquote, drawing boundaries with her, you know? And she would see your therapist as, a, as an enemy, right? So, uh, so the idea is, is as you differentiate, as you establish new boundaries, as you change the system, what you're trying to tell everyone is, look, at the end of this, I, I predict or I'm, I'm, I'm hoping and I'm, this, is, this is my goal is our relationships will be even stronger, will be even happier together, even more mutually supporting and stuff, you know. So you have to say that. Otherwise, families will have legitimate reasons for being upset with you. Not that that precludes your decisions in life, but anyway. Um, you also seem to be indicating that, you know, look, my sister's a therapist, so how, you know, you say, uh, when, when, when my sister is granted the title and certification of a therapist, then what do I do with that? Well, I'm here to tell you that therapists are just as human as any other human is and is just as prone to bias and systemic forces and, um, you know, their own anxiety as anyone else is. And so just because she's a therapist doesn't mean that she, her all of her advice is golden. You know, when you when you have a, a family member who's a therapist, you could you could call on them and ask them. But but if it's if they're involved in it then all bets are off. Believe me. I Take it from me as a therapist myself, but, um, and also, uh, you know, my friends who are therapists, we can't, we are a, exactly the same as non-therapists when it comes to things that involve us, right? When someone hurts our feelings, do we not bleed? <laughs> you know, when, when someone dumps us, we are just as likely to stalk them on Facebook or to say nasty things or threaten to slash their tires. You know, I'm being a little facetious, but the point is, is that therapist, there's this notion, there's a myth out there that therapists somehow are quote unquote healthier than non-therapists. And that, that is, believe me, not the case. Therapists, probably have, it's hard to measure this, but therapists probably have a leg up when it comes to awareness and how to make decisions about things and how to heal and blah, blah, blah. But that leg up doesn't negate all the foibles that people are prone to. Uh, 
So, uh, you know, I, I, I just had a recent conversation with a therapist friend of mine and their perspective seemed wildly biased because they were hurt. You know, they were, someone hurt their feelings and, and they didn't seem to be reflecting on it at all. And so, and I didn't, I didn't think anything of it. I just thought, oh, well, you know, when you get hurt, you, you think differently. <laughs> you know, when I get hurt, I, I, I think differently. So, um, so take what your sister is saying with a grain of salt. As you gain confidence and as you grow, you'll perhaps begin to see your sister as a, as a human being just like you who has self-esteem problems, who maybe even has been traumatized herself, who is um, scared and um, struggling just like you. It's, it's just um, the way that your family system is operated and the roles that people have adopted. It just appears that your sister is above that, but she's not, you know, she, she, I don't know her. <laughs> I'm talking like I know her. Of course I don't know her, but Uh, But anyway, I hope you get my point. All right, let's read another email here. All right, this email is from another anonymous patron. He writes, I have recently begun a PhD program in clinical psychology. I would really like to hear you do a discussion on imposter syndrome, particularly in grad school. This is the first time that I've experienced imposter syndrome where I truly feel like an imposter. Everyone around me is seemingly more motivated, more knowledgeable, more energetic, and more articulate than I am. I feel like they formulate thoughts quicker, they're better at networking, and they certainly seem more confident. They don't seem as heavily impacted as I do by the stressors of our program, and they express excitement about certain aspects of it to which I feel terrified and unprepared. I've heard that supposedly everyone experiences this, but it's really hard to shake these feelings. In a weird way, it almost feels like I've tricked these people into letting me come here. I feel totally out of place, despite the fact that I know I have worked incredibly hard to get here. I'm left wondering if I actually have the resilience to fight these emotions for another six plus years, and it's only been a month. God help me. All of these feelings have been exacerbated by the fact that I am training to become a psychotherapist, and I'm wondering how fair it is to the client for me to offer advice about their life when I have all these crippling feelings. Okay, so let me just answer this. This is a tough one. Um, and the, the first thing I'll say is to reiterate what you're saying, which is that everyone feels this to some extent. And I would imagine that some people feel it more. But I would guess that you are misreading your classmates. I would guess that your classmates are probably feeling exactly the way that you feel, but they're hiding it. You know, ask yourself this, how many of your classmates know you're feeling these feelings? My guess is, is not many of your classmates know. They probably just think you're a quiet one or whatever, but it's probable, it's probable that you haven't made it, you haven't advertised the fact that you're terrified and lack confidence. Well, all your classmates are exactly the same way. You know, they're, they're particularly first quarter, first quarter PhD, first year PhD is a terrifying thing. Um, when I went back for my doctorate, I was 39 years old. I, I was already an instructor for master's level student. I had already been instructing for, I don't know, 13 years or something. I'd been a therapist for 14 years. I'd been a supervisor. 
Uh, I was well established in the field and I was 39 and I had a podcast and, you know, my life was together. And so when I went to get my doctorate, I, you know, if anyone's going to feel confident going in, it's going to be me. It was at, I, I was getting my doctorate at the university I worked at. So my, my teachers were colleagues of mine. <laughs> you know, I felt like I was in classes with my being taught by my friends, essentially. And I'm here to tell you that, especially the first quarter, yeah, I was terrified. I wasn't, you know, conscious. I, I mean, I was, I knew everything would be okay in the end, but there were a lot of, you know, worries that I, I you know, when my brain had space to fill, it would fill it with worries about grad school, you know, about making a fool out of myself. In some ways, it put more pressure on me because the other students knew that I was an instructor at the university. And they're like, well, this guy, you know, I sort of, you know, projected into their heads this thought of, well, they must, they must expect me to be, you know, even better than any of the other students. And so anyway, the, the point is, is that everyone feels the imposter syndrome. It's, it's, it's just, it's just the way our society works. And I, you know, and it's hard. I, as a instructor and as a student myself, I have talked with thousands of students and I have never met a single student who didn't feel this way again, particularly at the beginning. So your idea that you're alone is probably false. The other, th unless you're, you just have a str very strange narcissistic group of classmates. <laughs> um, the other thing is, is in doctoral programs and in clinical psychology, in my experience, there's often a weird competitiveness that grows between students. You said in your email that I didn't read, I didn't read your entire email, but you, you said that your classmates were all pretty nice. But I suspect that there's a anxiety about wanting to, to be at least above average, right? You know, you, as a student, you're, you're just like, well, I hope my, I hope my instructors see that I'm at least average, if not above average, you know, and so there's a so by definition that means that you have to rise above the average of of the class in terms of so which means that students again, particularly in the beginning, are often constantly comparing themselves to their classmates. You know, everyone has to give a presentation, a half hour presentation. It's natural to look at the other presentations and, and see how your presentation measures up. You know, you're just like, oh, their PowerPoint is stupid. Or, oh, he's not talking loud enough. Or, oh, his research isn't really related. Or he has old research. Or I don't, he, his voice is funny. And, you know, surely my presentation is better than that. You know, it's just, it's just a natural thing for humans to do that when, when they're afraid. And so now again, from your email, you're, you're like, I've been told that everyone feels this way, but I don't know. Well, it's possible that you're feeling it more than other people. But don't think that you're alone in the feeling in and of itself. I, I would suspect that if you actually got into the heads of your classmates, you would find that everyone is feeling it significantly. And there's probably even an, a, a problem, you know, a group of your classmates who are feeling it just as bad, if not worse than you are. So, so I hope that that helps <laughs> to, to say. The other thing is, is that the profession of psychotherapy, as, as you were kind of alluding to, is an incredibly complicated endeavor. 
It is eternally complex. I have been studying this intensely, and now that I have been doing the podcast for the last nine or ten years, the podcast has given me this other opportunity to do all these different deep dives and stuff. And I'm telling you, I know. So this podcast will probably I'll probably be making. I, I usually make three episodes a week, and I would say about one and a half of those episodes are are new information to me, you know, where, where I do a deep dive and I'm like, huh, I didn't know all that stuff. I, I had a general idea of that stuff, but I didn't know. It. And so, you know, I, about one and a half episodes a week is new information to me. I know for sure. And, and I, and I can't imagine ever, ever stop, ever stopping the podcast. Right. It's not, especially if people are patrons and whatnot. I, I'm 46 right now. Although when this comes out, I'll probably be 47. Um, which is basically 50, right? Which is basically 60. You know, that's what I tell people. I'm like, they're like, how old are you? I'm like, well, you know, I'm basically 60. Anyway, um, I will be doing this podcast and as long as I can talk, right? <laughs> and, uh, it's, you know, if I get lucky, we'll say 80 plus. Well, you know, that's another 30, you know, plus years. I know that I will never run out of things to talk about. I know I will never run out of new, interesting things to look into. This field is so vast. It basically encompasses the entire, the entirety of the human experience and the entirety of human culture and history and philosophy. Everything is included. It's a, it's a practical, you know, soft science of all of that stuff. And so it, because of that, as a as a first quarter, um, you know, first semester PhD clinical psychology student, you you feel that you feel like, my God, I do not know anything, <laughs> and there's so much to learn, and it's so scary. Is it particularly in clinical psychology, honestly, be, because clinical so if you're if you're getting your masters or even your doctorate in marriage and family therapy or in the counseling field or in social work the scope of your practice is is um, by definition limited to some extent psychology is a has all these other professions and activities available and and you're and you're trained in all of them you're trained to do assessments you're trained I was trained to do forensics I was trained to to do Rorschach and I was trained, you know, there's just so many things that psychologists do. So anyway, my point is, is that there's sort of a rational fear about all that that could probably make you feel like an imposter. The other thing I want to tell you is that we have to really drill down on what an imposter exactly means, right? So if if we were to look rationally at the imposter label, we would say, you know, as you you think sort of that you tricked them into letting you into the program. Well, I'm here to tell you that as a as an instructor and a supervisor of thousands of students who have who have gone through my program and and I've supervised and whatnot, I can tell you that there's a bell curve of of innate ability, a bell curve of 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 intelligence and of uh, I don't know, p- talent, shall we say. And even the people that are on the low end of that bell curve, people with the least amount of talent, people with the lowest IQs, people with 
the, you know, the, I don't know, least amount of common sense and wisdom, they still manage to have a career in this field. It's not like becoming a theoretical mathematician. You know, it, it's something that you learn how to do and you figure out what you're good at and you figure out what you like to do. And it's, it's not that hard. Now, it, it's hard to do without proper education and supervision and experience. So I'm not saying that it's just like anyone can do it, but you're heading into a doctoral program, like you said, six plus years, you know, imagine where you'll be in six. And then after, after you graduate, there's more years of other consultation, supervision, learning. So, you know, you're on a long road. So even if you are, even if you lack, even if you're on the lower end of the talent scale, compared to your classmates, which is, you know, debatable and hard to tell. But even if you were at the low end of the town scale, that still doesn't mean you're not going to be a, a good clinician. It doesn't mean that you're going you're gonna to be kicked out of the program. You know, just just put one foot in front of the other. You know, you, you're, you're given an assignment to read something, read it. If, if you only get 2% of it, that's fine. I, that was certainly my experience when I was getting my master's in my mid-20s. A lot of the stuff I read in, the, in my training, I didn't even understand what it was saying. <laughs> I just didn't have the basis of understanding to give me a foot to, a leg to stand on as I was reading it. Um, and just, again, put one foot in front of the other and trust that you'll get there. And just try not to think about it. Or the other way of looking at this is sort of radical acceptance in terms of I am an imposter. <laughs> you know, just say, I feel like an imposter. I feel like I shouldn't be here. I feel like I don't deserve to be here. And just say, maybe I don't, but I am here. <laughs> and, and, you know, and if I get kicked out, then I get kicked out. But I'm just going to keep going until... Um, something very overt tells me that I shouldn't be here for now. Yeah, maybe I am. And maybe I am sort of an imposter. I'll tell you when I was getting my master's, I was 24 years old and I felt very, I felt like an imposter too. I remember looking around at my classmates who were, most of them were older than me. There was one guy we had, we were in this very small class. Bob Gettle was in the class and there's like just six or seven of us. And one guy in the class, Gary, he was, I th you know, he was probably like forty years old. He he talked like a veteran clinician in the first in the first class. You know, we're all going around in very Antioch fashion in a circle. We're talking about our lives and stuff. And I'm in a, I'm sitting down, and I'm basically like, I'm basically like a jock who played football and who was kind of a bro in a lot of ways and who listened to, you know, Smashing Pumpkins a lot and the Foo Fighters. And, and I plopped down on the seat and, and I just did not feel like I fit in. You know, everyone else seemed much more, I don't know, they were just so much more comfortable with things. I, I've talked about this before in the podcast where I didn't even really understand the concept of empathy. And I remember, I, I distinctly remember we had a reading about empathy and then we, and then we talked about it in class. We had a discussion 
And the way all my classmates talked about empathy, they knew empathy forwards and backwards. They're like, oh, empathy this, blah, blah, blah. And I'm, and I'm, and I'm catching up. I'm like, wait, I, this is all kind of new to me. This, the, the way you guys are talking, like, I don't, I don't. And I, I remember absolutely feeling like an imposter in some ways. I'm just like, there's something different about me <laughs> in this program. Like I, I am way behind people. You know, I was looking at my classmates and thinking, you guys came to this program already knowing a lot of this stuff to begin with. It's it's like when we read articles, this is review for me, for you, but for me, this is all brand new information. Um, and and I, you know, specifically this this forty year old ish guy, Gary, he he already he had already been in therapy. He had wanted to be a therapist for twenty years. I'd want when I entered graduate school, I had it. The, uh, the thought of even being a therapist had only just occurred to me six months prior. So I didn't have an identity as a therapist. Like I was, I basically felt like I would just pulled in off the street, you know, but I managed to get through. And when I graduated with my master's, uh, I still felt that way. You know, I felt less that way, but I definitely, when I graduated at the age of 26, I felt as though, I had sort of pulled one over on the school. Like, ha ha ha, I got my degree. Like I tricked you into believing that I actually know what I'm doing, you know, but that's just graduate school. You know, (laughs) you'd have to be so narcissistic to be like, yep, I'm the best. I'm better than everyone. I'm secure. I'm going to nail this. Everything's fine. Like you just have to be so strangely narcissistic to have those thoughts. It's just, it's a, it's a very normal process. So, um, I, ho- I hope that helps. Let me know if that helps. Um, the, the, the last factor I'll say here is that being a therapist is different from other professions, from, from many other professions, in that it's, it's officially you're not um, evaluated in this way, but unofficially you're being evaluated on your full personhood, right? Like if, if you're becoming a heart surgeon, you're, you're being evaluated on your ability to do heart surgery, right? And all the things that go with that. Well, when you're a therapist, you're in some ways at least being looked at in terms of your wisdom, in terms of your ability to put people at ease, in terms of your ability to intuit things, in terms of your charisma, in terms of your social awareness, and your politics, and the way you dress, the way you hold yourself, whether or not people like you, right? So those are things that y- you feel that in the room as as you are training to be in this field. And that is, you know, obviously terrifying, right? That everything about you is being scrutinized. That you know, saying the wrong word or coming across as awkward could indicate that you're not, you're not made for this profession. Now, of course, that's irrational thinking. And if anyone ever says that to you, they're wrong. But, but that's sort of like a notion that's out there. And, and I definitely remember feeling that. And again, most of my knowledge on this is as an instructor, because I've, I, I knew what it felt like for me to go through my master's and my doctorate, but I, I know much better how other people have gone through it because 
there's just so many more of them that I've talked to. <laughs> and that pressure is, is pretty severe, you know? Um, so that might be another factor. I don't know. So let me know how you're doing patron. I hope that, uh, you're probably a little bit further in, into the program. My guess is that you started in the fall. So you're probably three or four months in. I, I hope that it's better. Uh, it, it would break my heart if you let this gut get to you and, and it pushed you out of the field. Uh, that would be terrible. The, in terms of just general advice, talk to other people about it. Get, get, a, get a group of peers and talk about it. You know, just um, befriend some of your classmates. Talk with some of your instructors about it. T- talk to your, your faculty advisor. Um, find people who you can uh, be, who can be a mentor to you about this. When I went through graduate school, both my master's and my doctorate, a big reason why I survived in those extremely stressful experiences was because I had mentors. Being in graduate school is is a terrifying, um, stressful time. I I work with students throughout the program, and I'm telling one of the worst times. There's two terrible times for students in my program. <laughs> Uh, one is about halfway through their first quarter. They almost all of them have some kind of mental breakdown of some kind. Um, I even predict it. Like I'll tell students in their first quarter, I'll say, okay, it's week one. You're excited. You're unsure about what's going to happen. You're ready to go. You, you've put so much effort into being in the seat and, and you feel good about it. Well, about halfway through this first quarter, you're going to have questions about whether or not this was a good idea and you're going to, you're going to have headaches and you're going to be losing sleep and you're not going to be eating as well. And you're not going to be exercising as much and you're not going to have as much time for your family and friends and things are going to start to get to you. And when that happens, remember that I told you it was going to happen and, and remember that it's normal, you know, and, and my prescript, my suggestion is that you talk with other people about it. The other time that students will become very stressed out is about halfway through their internship, which is at the end of their program. Internship is just extremely stressful. There's just so many things about being a, an actual clinician that as, at an agency is where they're usually interning. Um, these are very stressful environments anyway, let alone for an intern. And so anyway, I, I'm telling you this because what you're experiencing is just part of that whole horribleness that is graduate school. And I'm guessing that graduate school in a lot of different fields has that same stress. So if you, so know that it's normal and talk with other people and get support and get a mentor, at least one and go to a therapist too. I mean, you know, you should be in therapy talking with your therapist because maybe this has to do with some kind of childhood humiliation or some kind of issue there, you know, just feeling uh, maybe, you know, who the question I would ask you if you were my client is like, who told you that you weren't where you were supposed to be? You know, who made you feel like an outsider? Who made you feel like you didn't deserve to be there or that you weren't worthy? My guess is, is that's where the wounds are. 
Anyway, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle in which I respond to random emails. Uh, Thanks for joining me out there. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really do. And you deserve to not feel like an imposter because we're all imposters. (laughs) 